everyone, and welcome to episode 55 of the Pink Bike Podcast. This happens to be the one-year anniversary of the podcast, which seems pretty crazy. So thanks to everyone for still tuning in after all these weeks. Somehow we keep coming up with more things to talk about, and so it looks like we'll be doing these for a whole lot longer. So keep listening, please. Today we're going to be talking about staying motivated, especially when there aren't any races to attend or when it feels like you've been doing the same thing over and over and over again. For some riders, that means setting a goal, whether that's ascending the height of Everest or maybe something a little less time-consuming, like riding a wheelie along a block. So we'll be getting into those. We've all got a bunch of stories about how we stay motivated and the little challenges that we think up for ourselves. Um, I'm Mike Kazmer, and with me, we've got James Smurthwaite. So, James, how are those wheelies coming along? Uh, wheelie, wheelie good. Uh, yep. nice. Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, we also have Sarah Moore. And Sarah, you've been doing some field trip testing. Do you even still feel like riding a bike anymore? Well, they were all under $3,000 bikes. So I got back onto my own bike. And, you know, compared to some of those hardtails, it's like totally a different sport. So I have like a fresh respect for my bicycle. And <laughs> I'm excited about, yeah, spending long days on my own bicycle. And we also have Henry Quinney with us. Henry, this is his first time on the podcast. He's also a new addition to the Pink Bike team. And he is no stranger to doing big, dumb rides. That's right. That's pretty fair to say. Would you, right, Henry? Yeah, it's not, not too far from the mark. Yeah, so we'll be getting into some of the things he's done, but he likes to pedal his bike for a very, very long time. And we'll also have Christina Cipetta joining in a little bit later to talk about big, dumb rides as well as some progression. She's probably out hitting a road gap or something right now, but we'll get her in the mix in a little bit. First, we'll start with the news. Thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, there wasn't a huge deal of new tech this week. I imagine most brands are sort of keeping their powder dry for that traditional sea otter date in mid-April. Um, but we should be getting quite a lot in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for more tech and 2021's Pond Beaver coming soon. We did get one new bike, though, in the form of the last Sinto. This shares a frame with the brand's Tarvo, as claimed to be the lightest enduro bike on the market. But this Sinto um, puts that, that same frame into a slightly smaller package. It's 145mm travel and it's aimed at more of sort of an all-mountain rider. The main change from the Tarvo comes in the rocker link, um, that's used to adjust the kinematics. But the rest of the German-made carbon frame stays the same, with some neat features like size-specific downtube storage and chainstay lengths. Henry, um, you put together a little article about this. Um, can you tell us anything more about this bike? Yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty interesting bike, actually. I think it's you're going to see, I think, in the coming years, more bikes go down that modular design route, and I think it makes a better fist of it to start with quite a light platform should you go lighter travel. One of the things I like is actually they change the pivot placements depending on size, basically really working around kind of consistent principles about um, kind of suspension kinematics. So as you go through the sizes... You know, they really kind of blend in those anti-squat value and, uh, and yeah, all, all through the size. I think it's, I don't know, really thought out bike, I think. Yeah, it's a really good looking bike too. It had that intense suspension on it and then, and the weight. I think they said you could build one up as light as 25 pounds, which seems pretty ridiculous. I'd like to see that build. They didn't, I didn't see any spec list of what was on that build, but that's really light for a 145 mil travel bike. Um, doesn't come without a fair cost though. German handmade um frame only four thousand dollars and only a hundred gonna be made so i don't expect to see too many of these on your local trails i think that's fair to say um next up bike delays definitely aren't news this is a problem we've been facing for best part of six months if not longer but we've had some more info this week and some events that definitely don't help that situation first up specialized executive vice president robert uh, margovicious 
Um, he gave a talk at the Taipei Cycle Online Show and said it's going to be more than a year until inventory levels return to normal for the cycling industry. Did that figure surprise you guys, or were you sort of thinking along the same lines? I wouldn't say I was that surprised, based on how like how out of stock I've heard of companies being. It you know it takes time to get things from overseas, and then when you have boats going sideways and canals, it takes even longer. So, yeah, it wasn't surprising, but it's going to be interesting to try to watch these companies figure out how to predict what the future is going to be. You know, if all these people say they meet the demand, is that demand going to stay high or is it going to drop after that? So it'd be really tricky to be somebody forecasting bike buys right these days. I would not like that job. Yeah, it sounds really scary. A lot of spreadsheets and a lot of uncertainty and you're going to make the wrong decision no matter what you do. Either you're going to sell out of the bike or you're going to have some leftover that you have to somehow get rid of. So yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of difficult decisions. And yeah, it's kind of... I don't think it's, I think it would be surprising if it was more than a year. Right now, I feel like a year we've come to expect that number. So hopefully it doesn't get longer than a year though. Yeah, he he had a a presentation um, with a load of um, lead times on it and, you know, saddles, wheels, suspension, all 300 plus days at the moment. So it's, yeah, it's definitely going to be a year, hopefully not too much longer, but definitely a long time. Speaking of predictions, I think a lot of sort of, um, brands are hoping and, and predicting that this bike boom will last but the factories he said seem kind of reticent to expand their production capacity apparently they're increasing efficiency sort of 10 to 15 percent but they're not going out building new factories expecting to produce kind of a lot more stuff um, what does that say to you guys yeah I mean I think it's just, everyone's trying to be it's that fine line that balancing act of being you know you don't want to be too careful, but you don't want to be too optimistic and open up a whole new factory. And then all of a sudden, two years from now, you just have an empty factory that's losing you money. So yeah, again, super tricky to predict. And that's definitely not my area of expertise. And I think it depends as well where the risk lies, because I think a lot of bike companies, you know, they book in their production or they rent essentially a space in the factory. And it's going to be really interesting to see, because if you own the factory, you can think, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, upgrade or expand how much I can produce but if you're merely booking space in the factory then you don't want to take on the risk and it's it adds another another moving piece I think exactly it also makes it really challenging for some of the smaller companies that the ones that are just booking spots you know they have a small limited run limited production run of frames or whatever it is and that slot is harder to get when you have these bigger companies that are just wanting more and more space basically so like obviously yeah I heard a couple of months ago and this was you know before things were getting really bad that a smaller manufacturer kind of know they're buying forks of chain reaction just to build up bikes because they didn't have the, that bargaining power to put in that huge order. And it's a pretty strange time, I think, for some small businesses who might be able to kind of be a bit quicker footed, but yeah, they don't have much buying power. Yeah, I think we're also seeing, you know, if a factory takes three to four years to build, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it could be all over by then. They'll just be left with this huge empty factory. And, you know, production is, is going out of Taiwan. There's a lot more local production we're seeing springing up. So I think there's kind of a lot of risk factors for those factories there. And it seems like we're just going to have to wait for now. Um, there are a couple of other things that might affect supply as well. Um, Kaz, obviously, you mentioned the boat in the Suez Canal. Um, we've confirmed that there were some canyon bikes on there. Um, and no doubt with the backlog behind that boat, there's some other bikes being delayed as well. And then the situation in Myanmar um, might also be affecting the supply of some brands. Um, I know Pivot and Da Vinci, among others, um, manufacture some bikes out there. So we're keeping a close eye on that as well. 
Uh, moving on, we want to say a huge congratulations to Corey Walsh, uh, the pro BMXer who came out this week. The comment section um, is a bit of a trip, probably not in a good way for this, um, but I think it's worth addressing some of those comments and asking why we posted it, why we think it's news. In my mind, it's news largely because of some of those negative comments um, that that piece attract, uh, attracted. You know, I think if posting this makes other LGBTQ members of the community feel more comfortable or it inspires them, then it's 100% the right thing to do. And um, yeah, I guess well done, Kaz, for being, being the, the one in the trenches there deleting and, and moderating that one. Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate, you know, and, and people would say, why is this news? And it, it is news because you can see some of those reactions. People just get so, I mean, there's a lot of homophobic people that just came out crawling out of the woodwork and it's it's horrible, you know, like, you should support everybody. We want to include everybody, um, you know, no matter no matter what. And so it was, it was super frustrating dealing with all of the idiots that were that were coming up. So, anyways, congrats to Corey. It's definitely like a, a courageous, brave move to do that. You know, even though people said, "Oh, it shouldn't matter," it does because if you knew that you're going to get that many people trying to, you know, diminish your sexual orientation, um, that's it's scary. So I don't know. Super like proud that he did that, and hopefully, it does inspire people to take those steps because it's uh the world's not perfect still so yeah and it's also scary you know you're saying it's courageous and i think a big part of that is you know there's people in the comments some of those people work for different brands like y- we have to make sure that you know those brands aren't not sponsoring somebody because they they're they're gay or you know that kind of thing can happen so um yeah i think it's the more the more uh normalized it is the the better and yeah one day maybe we won't have to post this kind of article and that's the day that the comments are the comments are just positive yeah exactly i would have loved to just be like three comments like good job cool that's it but it was not like that and it's super unfortunate and frustrating so a lot more it's it's funny because if that was the case then it would have actually undermined the argument that it's not news so it's just it goes around day yeah yeah it's it's yeah that was that took up way too much of my time yesterday. But anyways, congrats to Corey. And if people don't know who Corey Walsh is, you just watch some of the video, his videos because they're insane. Just watching what he can do, he can just, in a skate park, it's absolutely ridiculous. So more than anything, he's an awesome bike rider. Finally, we want to send some props to Cycling Tips editor Ronan McLaughlin, who reclaimed his Everesting world record. Um, he claimed it last year and then it was taken away from him and he's beaten that time again. So he climbed the 8,848 meters or 29,000 feet in six hours, 40 minutes, 54 seconds, which is 20 minutes faster than the previous world record. He did it on a 14% climb. He climbed it 75 times. Um, Apparently he could have even gone faster, but um, he punctured on one of the descents, had to swap bikes, was riding a different bike at the end. It's insanely impressive stuff. Um, Definitely puts me to shame. What's the most climbing you guys have, have done in a day? How does that compare to your your PB? I think Henry wins. What's the most you've done, Henry? Yeah, I've, I've done a little bit. I mean, you know, I think this guy's an athlete, and I, there's a very a big distinction between someone like him and and me who goes out and basically just eats crisps and Oreos and rolls up and down a hill for a few hours. Um, no, absolutely mad. I think what's really cool is that the other people with the lockdown stuff, the riders vying for that record like Grand Tour winners, a lot of like road pros, some of the great and the good. And he's gone out there and just done it again. I just think it's super cool. I like seeing some of the underground people that you wouldn't probably wouldn't hear their name, but then because there aren't, aren't races happening, they put down numbers like this. And like, oh, who's, who's this yeah. guy? So that's cool. In, in, uh, incredible stuff. 
Yeah. But you've, you've done Everest though, right, Henry? Yeah, I've, I've done yeah. Done one or two, yeah. <laughs> I've done a couple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, feel, I suddenly just feel very, very awkward. I don't know, like biting my nails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll dig into. Yeah. How long you did your Everest take? Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe, if memory serves, it took more than six hours. It might have even been seven hours. Um, a little bit longer than open. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I did like a three thousand meter road climb. Like we did all the the triple crown on road bikes in North Vancouver, and that was three thousand meters of climbing, and it took all day i mean we did stop at a, co- a couple coffee shops and you know it's a little bit of a, a different challenge but yeah that's i think the most i've ever done so that's more than twice almost three times what i've ever done in a day in much less time yeah if you're into your kind of bike dorkery i think there's a few bike checks out there with his his uh, modified bike that he's done with like you know it's like specific gearing and cut down bars and everything like that which i'd, I'd recommend checking out as well it's really interesting all right. Well, that brings us into some questions. Toshin Boy, he says, I wonder how bike shops feel about all the advances in electronics. It seems that folks will be going to the Apple store rather than their LBS in the future. What will will we need mechanics if there's barely anything mechanical on the bike? Uh, I mean, you're going to find both sides. I think both answers if you go to the bike shop. Like some of the mechanics are probably interested to learn about electronics and other ones are probably frustrated and annoyed. And I think if I was still working in a shop, I'd be in both camps. Some days I'd probably be excited about electronics and other days I'd want to throw them out into the street but um it's kind of part of how things change just like anything there will you'll still need mechanics though there's always going to be mechanical things hopefully (laughs) there has to be (laughs) it's hard to imagine a non-mechanical bike i don't know what that looks like yeah i think you can still take you know cars have computers and all sorts and then you can still take that into a garage and get most things fixed right um so i don't think it could be too different i do think it's interesting um on a slight tangent the eu this week um introduced like the right to repair so um companies of like i think it's like washing machines fridges and maybe tvs something like that (laughs) (laughs) the companies are going to be forced to make spares and make it possible for people to repair their own stuff um and yeah i think one of the cool things about bikes is like you can work on it as an eight-year-old kid and you know the same skills you'll use when you know you work on the bikes we work on um and you know yeah i wouldn't want to use that as as um e-bikes kind of become more prevalent i guess yeah, exactly. I don't want like the Tesla model where you're not supposed to open up your Tesla and work on it supposedly. But then there's like guys with YouTube channels that that's what they do because they figured out how to get around all the limitations. But yeah, hopefully we can see, still keep working on our own bikes. That would be good. Next one comes from NW Air. He says, question for you guys. Do you ever see regenerative braking being integrated into EMTBs? Could a button activated button activated thing that lets you change if when you wish or lets you charge if and when you wish and possibly extend the range of the batteries a bit further or allow the batteries to be smaller to go the same distance? I don't really know. That would be cool. Maybe Henry knows. I don't think I think harvesting from the hubs is the reason it only does a light is because that's all it can do. And I think you're gonna have to be doing some pretty impressive brake dragging to you know, to get and I think it's a really cool idea. It comes to, I guess from that Formula One curse energy recovery system thing um but i can't see it taking off a eh? i think it'd be so heavy yeah i think the weight would be the thing and like a dynamo hubs those have gotten kind of impressively small compared to the old dynamo hubs for like charging lights and things but even then you're adding weight and yeah i'm not sure yeah i remember when we were when i worked in a bike shop we would sell a lot of uh Bionex, uh motors and you just like put it on on your hybrid kind of before e-bikes were a thing but i think that business has gone out of gone out of business um but that was what they did was like they would if you braked you would gain back a little bit of power but it was never really enough to 
to make a difference. I wonder how it works though with like power surges and stuff. You know, if you're just getting on the anchors, does that? I did. I know nothing yeah. about electronics. Yeah. Just a caveat. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow you just like explode your battery when you go down a really steep hill. Like you drag and break so much that it just overcharges <laughs> it, and, and you're flying it. Yeah, I don't know how this works. So. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the guy's question initially that was asking about the advances in electronics that we obviously don't know a lot about them. So for all of us, we're going to be learning a lot about electronics in the future. But it's something different. I don't know. There'll still be plenty of bikes with chains and normal things. Yeah, well, that brings us to the end of our news and questions. I think we're going to let James go and we're going to bring Christina Cipetta in. But James, thanks for joining us. and We'll talk to you next time. Well, now time to get to our discussion about big, dumb rides or how to stay motivated. So everybody has their own own methods of how to stay motivated when there's no racing, or even if you don't race, how do you just kind of maintain the desire to keep riding your bike when you've ridden a whole bunch or maybe not enough, but either way, we're going to talk about what we do to keep entertained on the bicycle and to make it always seem fun and not like a chore. So let's see, we'll start with Henry because Henry's done some really big, dumb rides. Like he definitely has, I think out of all the, Tech editors, for sure, you've ridden the longest in one stint, right? Like, what's your longest? What's your longest one? Uh, I did, like, like, I think it was 940k. This is on a road bike, though. Mm-hmm. But that was a big old day. That's a big day. And I got on a ferry and slept for four hours and then tried to do it again. <laughs> and it went horribly wrong. But on the mountain bike, I think longest ride is maybe... I don't know, I did 25 hours once, but that's only because an Everest went bad. And I just kept on chipping away at it. Um, but yeah, Everest is sort of my maximum. That's all I've ever really got involved with. Yeah. And do you um, set those goals kind of to just to have something to aim for besides, cause you don't tend to race a lot, correct? You're kind of more. No, no. Averse to racing. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's something to aim for. I think when, when not to sound like too much of a hipster douchebag, but when I first read about Everesting, this was in like 2014, I think I did it my first one in 2015. And I wanted to see if it could be done on mountain bike. I couldn't really find that many people that had done them off-road, if anyone. Um, and so I kind of had a look, and I, I thought there was something that I thought was quite like a romantic pursuit. Um, and it really captured my imagination. And seemingly, like, going through them, it's always been when I've got to a hill, and I've thought, this would be a really horrible Everest. And that's that's kind of turned something over. Um, and it's And it sounds really lame and silly, but, like, each of the hills that I've done them on have got, like, a like a bit of a meaning and a bit of a story and it's you know it's because there's so much stuff i hear about and i think that's really cool i really respect that but it just doesn't interest me whatsoever but there's if it captures my imagination then i am um, kind of just get like locked onto it and you know i'll try i'll do my best yeah yeah i guess we might as well we didn't really explain earlier i might as well explain what everest is to people that are listening that might not know i think it's gotten much more well known in the last couple of years because there's been so many but basically to do an everest you have to ascend get the number of vertical feet that is the height of mount everest which is what twenty nine thousand thirty four feet or somewhere around there i think um so don't hear my fun fact about everest i would like to hear that yes basically i think it was this nepalese scientist and he worked out a way to measure measure the height of mountains at a distance which is obviously very useful when he measured everest and it was twenty nine thousand feet exactly and he was really annoyed because people would think he had rounded it so the first reading of everest was twenty nine thousand and two feet and he just added the two to make it seem more credible. <laughs> That's right. And good. then it's since changed, like even this past year, if you did an Everest, it was it got a little bit 
higher, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you yeah. have to pedal a little more. So basically, to to do that, you have to send that height. And the like, official, unofficial Everesting rules, you have to do that on the same course. So you, you can't just do one mega ride that has that much vert. It has to be basically the same loop over and over and over again until your brain melts and then you've ascended the correct amount. So did you choose like a, a steep hill, Henry, or like a more gradual hill? Or like, I feel like that's a lot of like what chooses your time. Uh, yeah. The first time I did it up, there's a trail called Rude Rock in New Zealand, which is, you know, a nice mix. It's good because it has a little like flat section where you can kind of stretch out your hands. Um, and then also did one up in New Zealand, which is at the bike park, and it's like 18% average, and it was just awful. And I was doing it with this guy called Ben Hildred, who was such a better rider than me. And he was just like, you know, breezing up this thing. And I looked like on the edge of a mental breakdown for like the whole day. It was awful. Um, the one that was the worst that was actually doing it on a UK hill, because the hill's so small, you have to do so many laps. It's really inefficient. And, um, yeah, your body does get a bit battered when there's more like braking forces going through it, I think, and hitting compressions. It was pretty, pretty awful, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, yeah, so you're, when you're heading out, I mean, on a typical day, do you like having a goal on most of your rides? Or are you somebody that can just kind of have a little bit of free time? Like, I just want to go goof around on my bike. Or are you usually like, I'm going to keep riding with this goal in mind? No, it's, everything is, it's all kind of, um, all, all coming from myself. I'm quite intrinsically motivated. I don't really care that much about what the people are doing um, in terms of like getting a competitive edge or thinking I kind of respect that a lot of riders are basically far better than me and that I'm really happy with that. And I don't think, Oh, they've done this. So I need to do that. I just think like over um, Portuguese winter, I was just working on the premise of doing 1600 meters a day. And that was really nice because a lot of days having to do two so I could get a day off and do none or whatever. Um, And that was like a real nice target because it's funny the, once you do it for a week, you think it's worth something to you. And then you do it for another week and then it's really worth something to you. And I wouldn't say I'm a particularly stubborn person, but you get these little challenges and they, they get their teeth in and it's really hard to walk away from them. Yeah, that's a lot of vert each day. Yeah, that's impressive. I saw Christina make a, a face. People that are listening can't see Christina's face, but it was a, a face of disgust. <laughs> 1,600 you... <laughs> meters a day? Like for more than just a week at a time? No, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, what's your you, you've done some big dumb rides though, Christina, right? I'm pretty sure I've seen or heard if you're doing some some mega. Yeah, mega I've rides. done a couple. Uh, the biggest kind of adventure thing that I signed up for and paid a lot of money would have been the Trans BC six day enduro. And honestly, like up until that week in my life, this was a couple years ago now. Uh, I didn't think it was possible to like ride six days in a row. Plus, they're like some of the most technical trails around BC and you're racing blind. And after the first day, you're like hurting a little bit. You're like, oh, I'm kind of sore. Like, we have to do that again tomorrow and then again and again. And it's just kind of this little this crazy thing you go through. I always call it uh, like adult summer camp on the bike, because after day three, you've like tapped into this zone and you've gone, you know, further than you've gone before and you've ridden the hardest trails and you're just so fatigued because the days there, like they're kind of minimum 1500 meters. Some of them are like 2000 meter days on the mountain bike. And yeah, by the end of the week, you're just so in tune with your skills and what you're capable of doing. And so, yeah, ever since I did my first Trans BC Enduro, honestly, everything since then has just seemed so much easier. Like I can go motivate for a six hour bike ride, no questions asked, because 
I know what I'm capable of. And it's interesting, like a lot of people, you know, they don't want to be competitive or put themselves out there in those kinds of situations. But when you do it, even just once, and you realize, you know, what you're capable of mentally, physically, and you can just keep that morale going, it's a it's a really cool experience. And after that, everything just is easier. Yeah, I think there's something really hard about, because when I ride, I just potter along and I go very slowly and I have a relatively nice time. But the thought of doing something like that does intimidate when you're racing and everything. There's a competitive edge to be had, to be had I think, because it like, takes on another layer of mental fatigue. But the thing I always come back to, to kind of, when I'm feeling a bit low, I need to get something done. You ever seen that picture of that monk that self-immolates? He's yeah. like protesting the Vietnam War. He's on the cover of the Machine album. Yeah, if, if somebody can do that, I can ride a bike. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's quite the, the juxtaposition. But yes, you're like, yeah, if that guy did that, I could just go around. Yeah, it, it, it right. puts it in perspective. Like, some of my bigger days, I guess, with Pink Bike, we've documented my winter solstice ride and my summer solstice ride. And those are funny things because, you know, I literally, just, like, I like to do stuff like that anyway. And I'm like, well, I might as well you know, make a video about it. This is my job. And, and then all of a sudden the day comes and it's pissing rain or snowing. And you're like, Oh my God, what did I sign up for? Like, (laughs) I have to do this today. Today is summer solstice, not tomorrow. And yeah, again, you just, for me anyway, when I tell myself I'm going to do something, then it's, you know, it's no holding back and you're doing it. Oh, everybody else bailed on you. Well, that sucks. You're just going to have a lonelier day and you get out there and you do it. And it's pretty cool what you, what you end up riding on those kinds of days and what you kind of put yourself through without like really being prepared maybe or just knowing what's to come. But yeah, it's wild. You can level up. Exactly. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the big stupid rides because they do make you, they just put you in a different space. And like you said, the multi-day big rides, I did Trans-Provence a number of years ago and that was so fun just because you get in that zone. Like you said, you're just like riding and riding. You don't have anything else to do and you know, it's it's great. But Sarah, you did the BC bike race before, right? I did. Yeah, I guess 2019 I did it. And it's, ooh, is it seven days, eight days? I think it's eight days with a prologue. And yeah, kind of the same thing. It's maybe not quite as long days as an enduro because you're just going really, really hard for the entire section. So you don't kind of get to chat on the climbs. You're just like, move out of my way. Or somebody else tells you to move out of the way if you're slowing them down. <laughs> um but yeah, it was kind of just nice to like have that effort every single day. And then I just like take a nap in the afternoon and like eat as much food as I possibly could. And yeah, it's, uh, it's fun to do like one big ride, but when it's cumulative, you always have it kind of in the back of your head until the last day, like, Ooh, maybe I should save something, which is kind of like a funny struggle to to have when it's a multi-day event you can't just like lay it all out on the table in the first day and get leg cramps and then you're just like I guess I can't really ride for the rest of the week so yeah it's kind of that was the first time I'd actually done a multi-day stage race so that was pretty cool yeah because you're usually a race you do a fair number of races each year when they're available right like with enduro these days and yeah yeah I used to race race cross country and that was like an hour and a half race we didn't very often do back-to-back racing um, and then, yeah, I've done like the NIMBY 50 and the test the metal, which are like those endurance, uh, events. So like, I think they're about yeah 30 to 50 kilometers in, in one day. And the next day I am not riding after one of those, like, <laughs> um, and then yeah, enduro races I've done, like when I started those, I was like, this is the best 
sport ever. You just get to like chat with your friends on the climb and then just ride downhill fast. Um, but obviously there's a bit more to it than, than that. You have to go really fast on the downhills and it's a little scary (laughs) sometimes. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely kind of different to race enduro versus racing cross country and just like enduro, the practice is so hard as well. Like that's almost like the cumulative fatigue from like the two days of training and then sometimes it's two days of racing. So that definitely kind of wears on you, but it's not as obvious, like who's winning practice, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so now without racing, like since there hasn't been a lot of racing and your obviously race calendar is pretty open, what are you doing to stay motivated? Like, do you, are you someone that can just wake up and be like, I love riding my bike. I'm just going to go no matter what, or do you need some other goal? Like are you in the Henry camp where you need something on the board that he's striving for? Or I'd say I like to have something in the works like I'm like training for something like a big goal like racing it's like if you fail you're failing on like a public scale which like nobody actually cares if I finish like 10th or 20th in a race but like I care I'm like oh people are gonna see my name further down the leader list right um but yeah I haven't raced in a while so I kind of like just like tracking the rides that I do I think um is really motivating for me just like how much elevation I've done like some people hate tracking their rides but I really enjoy going out with my computer and whether I look at it during the ride or after the ride it's just kind of like seeing the accumulation like day after day week after week and then um yeah kind of setting weekly goals to break things down um and then I haven't actually set a goal for this year yet but i feel like one of those big dumb like summer solstice rides is is in the works we could plan that out summer solstice yeah. of uh the pink bike ladies coming at you yeah. i want to join too if we get that border open <laughs> otherwise henry and i'll do one somewhere else June 21st yeah <laughs> i was trying to talk to is the tom bradshaw actually about doing like an awful ride about like for every kilometer for every dollar your bike costs you've got to ride a kilometer with a minimum of like $50. So you've got to do a 50 kilometer ride, but like, it'd be like basically glorified gravel biking, but you try and get the cheapest bike possible. Then you might think, oh, but that one's only $60 and it's, it's way better. And then it would just. <laughs> oh, that's a pretty good go. Yeah. I think we could do something like that. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. I could definitely do like, Yeah. 60 kilometers on a $60 bike would be good. But yeah, as those numbers start changing, it gets a little harder. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Even like your 900 kilometer road ride on a 900 dollar bike like that yeah that would be pretty hard awful awful awful. i mean it was awful anyway let alone with the crab did you do that without stopping or like how did you like 24 hours how long did it take i know i got i got uh about 15 minutes sleep which was but it was a funny oh man so many weird things happened in that trip eh? i was so naive i was like a mountain biker but i was thought oh i'll get a road bike and give it a bash and um yeah so many (laughs) because i had a little i had a support team behind me which makes a huge difference you know huge difference and um, and I remember I was riding, I've been riding for about 600k and my heart rate started to go really low. And I just said to this guy that was driving, my friend Jack, I said like, so um, my heart rate's like, it was like really low, it was like 60. I was like, so I'll go for a nap and we'll see how we go. And then he woke me up to 10 minutes and I was like, all right, then I'll get back on the bloody bike. <laughs> <laughs> like you were actually falling asleep on the bike? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Horrible. I fell asleep on the bike once. Really? Yeah. Yeah, was, was it like, a result of alcohol or? No, no. I, I, 20, I was doing a 24 hour race and I was going down a hill and I totally fell asleep and like woke oh up. Oh my the God. Like, yeah, I was just like, bro. <laughs> yeah. I can honestly uh, say I've never yeah. ridden to that point of exertion and I don't want to. So that's fine. Yeah. When I was super little, I did a ride where it was like, 
I was like, tw- I was 12 years old and I got my first mountain bike and I heard that there was a, a metric century. So it was like a hundred kilometer road ride. And I was like, I want to do a hundred kilometers of road riding. And I was on a mountain bike. So I got slick tires for it and thought that this would be sweet. So my parents dropped me off. I was 12 years old and I rode and like, obviously I'm a slow little kid on a, a mountain bike with slick tires. And so the roadies are gone and I'm out there just cruising along for like hours and hours and hours and like there's no cell phones back then because it's the <laughs> olden days for like horse and buggy days and like so i just riding and i remember sitting on a on a guardrail and like nodding off and like waking up and still paddling and by the time i finished there was obviously nobody at the finish line because i finished so much longer than anyone else because i was on a mountain bike with like tires, oh it was like an organized event it. wow yeah yeah it was like when i was like i, I thought ride, your parents like, just like, like a... set you off for 160k i mean pretty much because i don't even know how they knew how to pick me up because when i finished i had like no one was there and they must have found me but like it took me so many hours but i was only like 12 years old <laughs> like riding around a little 26 inch <laughs> so, wheels and yeah yeah full shirt yeah it was my dime back topanga with slick tires like slick you know two inch wide tires not like road <laughs> wheels <laughs> I know. I don't, yeah. That's kind of how I got into like the endurance side of cycling, though. Because when I was a teenager and I got a road bike, and I thought, "Oh, this is amazing! I'll go out with a local ride," and they were all really nice, but they didn't give me an inch. These are these are grown men who are like thirty five years old, been road riding for twenty years, just absolutely like just broke me like week in week out, and I just thought, "Well, I clearly can't go fast. I may as well try and go far." And that's literally how it started. <laughs> yeah, you got to find your strength. You get in where you fit in. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess it sounds like all of us here have appreciation for those big, dumb rides. But not everybody likes to ride and suffer as much as we all might. But, so there's other ways, I think, to stay motivated to, to get on your bike. I think, Christina, lately you've been doing stuff that's got me motivated. I see your little clips of doing some hucking, and I'm like, ah, oh, i got to get out and go hit some big moves. So I, I talk about like the progression side of things. How do you decide, like, oh, I'm going to start working on – it seems like you made a conscious decision to start maybe stepping up your jumping game a little Definitely. bit. Definitely. I, I mean, I've been riding Whistler Bike Park for – you know, eight, nine years. And honestly, like you just get a little complacent there. Everybody else in the world's like, oh, it's, you're so lucky you have Whistler Bike Park. But honestly, it's built so good there that hitting, you know, even jumps like Crab Apple, for instance, like 30, 40 foot tables, it might sound really big, but because they're built so nice, they're, they're actually quite easy. And so I've just been at a point lately where, you know, I want to, keep progressing you know I'm, I'm 32 I'm not getting any younger so I might as well step up the game and you know I haven't I've probably been riding for like nine ten years now but there's kids half my age um, just absolutely sending it out there on trails and like trail jumps as well and yeah it just kind of got me thinking like oh I ride all this stuff in the bike park and it's so easy like I really should challenge myself to ride something gnarly outside of the bike park like Let's go hit a double, you know, maybe not a filled in table. And as soon as you take away that that table in the middle there, like things get real. All of a sudden, jumps look way bigger, way harder, way gnarlier. And yeah, I just kind of started seeing a lot of videos this off season from local riders and then also like some really big heavy hits by, you know, Miranda Miller in particular ALN's been sending it, um, obviously riders like Georgia, Haley, Michaela, like these are all people that I've looked up to for years. And I, I can kind of say now, like we do ride together sometimes, but more often than not, I'm just following their Instagram and getting hyped with everybody else. So yeah, it's been an awesome winter for like watching that progression from other people and just kind of being 
in a really good space on my bike and mentally as well. Like I haven't been going to the gym a ton this year. I haven't been on the indoor trainer. I've literally been snowboarding and mountain biking. And because of that, I think I actually feel stronger on my bike than I have previously. So I can, you know, mentally and physically, I can take bigger hits and and I should be, you know, if that's my goal in life is to always just be a better rider and keep progressing. Like only you are going to be in charge of that. So yeah, I've been getting inspiration from a lot of other people, uh, Remy and Yoan as well. And Steve Vanderhoek, they're all awesome local riders that go big. And for the longest time, it was just like an inspiration, like, Oh, that's cool. Those guys do that. That's crazy. And then, you know, I go, hit the poacher drop or whatever. And I'm like, holy moly, that was like the biggest drop I have ever hit on my bike in or outside of a bike park. And yeah, it just feels so good. And then you watch the video again and you're like, oh, I didn't suck. I actually like, (laughs) I did it correctly. (laughs) And I I stomped the landing. And yeah, once you do that, you're like, okay, I guess I go find something else. And, you know, for me as more of an enduro racing background in my relatively short mountain bike career, um, yeah, if there's no racing, like I feel like you got to do something and spending a lot of time on my snowboard this year, hitting side hits on the ski hill and just, you know, doing cat track groomer runs and going at a big giant 20 foot wall of snow. It definitely inspired me to go bigger on the bike. And it just kind of gave me that confidence with speed as well. Cause you're not, you know, especially in the winter, we're not riding bike park laps. So we're not used to that kind of fast speed, open, let off the brakes feeling. Uh, it's it's kind of, it's intimidating for sure. And so being able to do that on my snowboard this winter translated directly into my biking. And yeah, I'm pretty stoked. I feel better on the bike now than I have. And I, I think a lot of that comes down to the bike is like set up properly. And when all these little pieces come together, it's, it's quite a magical little recipe. So I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to keep the vibe alive and Hopefully not slow down anytime soon. Free ride, Geppetto. No, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know the Squamish free ride crew is so strong right now. <laughs> I need to go up there. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I think it's cool. I think, I mean, speaking of crews, it's nice to have buddies that can kind of push you or at least support you in doing that. Like it's going and hitting big new moves by yourself in the woods isn't really the best recipe for success. Like, it's <laughs> so helpful to have somebody that can, <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> if, yeah, if someone can either show you it or encourage you that you have it in a realistic way, I think that's, that's pretty good. And yeah, it motivates you to keep, I mean, for me, I do like having little goals, whether it's a, to hit some move or something like that. Like, Oh, I know I need to get that this time, or at least look at it and see if I'm feeling it and then go for it. Definitely. I think, uh, like, a just a little note on that. There's always been this cheesy kind of quote going around. Well, if she can do it, I can do it. Or if they could do it, I could do it. And Mm -hmm. as long as you can kind of like find someone that you resonate with, that really inspires you, that, you know, their style of riding, even if it is way more elevated than your style of riding or your abilities like those are the people that you need to latch on to and keep around for inspiration and just to keep the stoke alive too because yeah they're the ones that you see them do it and you're like okay I, I know their style I know their speed I know that they're going to pop this and not scrub it or whatever the case is and that's when you can really make some progression I think Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good to know who you can't follow. Cause I definitely have buddies who I know I cannot follow. Cause they have like 
they'll be going so slow and then they pop like a kangaroo and they can just make it like way deep in the landing. <laughs> and I follow them like case the shit out and be like, Oh yeah, that didn't work out. So, and I also know there's people that do things I can't do. So there's certain riders around here and especially where you guys are. It's like, it doesn't, I know that, uh, I know I can't follow them. I can appreciate what they do, but I'm like, nah, I'll let you take that line. Yo or whoever yeah. you can roll that and I'll go around. And some people <laughs> are just like better at breaking things down for you as well before, like, you know, whether you resonate with their style or not, some people just like understand what their body is doing better when they take off on a lip or something or a drop. And they can kind of explain to you what you need to do in more in terms that you understand a little bit better. So I find that's interesting. Like when you ride with some people and they break it down, you're like, Oh, okay. That is doable. So I think, yeah, Remy is probably pretty good at doing that. Yeah. He doesn't say just like no brakes, pull up the classic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. He'll be fine. No brakes and pull up. Like, that's not yeah, a he, thing. He definitely, like, he definitely used to. Let's not work. give him too much credit. Now. <laughs> oh yeah. I know. He's, He's come, come a long, a long way. 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 Like, yeah. Yeah. He was just like, Oh, you just do this. Follow me. And like, eh, that's not the way, but yeah, it's not ever. Yeah. It's someone that can actually explain things. It's, it's a mm-hmm. good skill. But also riding but, with different people, I find pretty motivating because if you go out with the same people all the time, then you kind of go around the same features all the time. But if you go out with people who just see the trail totally differently, like I was riding with somebody on the weekend and they're like, oh yeah, you could do this as like a double and then a double, or you could do it as a quad. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is not what I saw, but like now, now I can see (laughs) it. So like, that's kind of motivating to just like look at the trail differently and say, if I had a lot more speed or, you know, I was popping here, like I could you know, make this trail entirely differently than how I rode it the first time I went down it. How about like hitting up the pump, pump track or dirt jumping Do any of you into that? I think I know Christina, you've hit the dirt jumps this year for the first time, but I know around here, we've got some really good pump tracks that if I'm feeling kind of like, I don't want to go out for a full on big ride. I'm just kind of burned out for me. If I go pump track for even just a half hour, an hour, I feel like I got my ride in and did something and I kind of kind of gets me going again. I don't know. Does anyone else? Oh, the pump track is such a good workout. Uh, We don't have one like, I mean, I'm in Whistler, so it's still pretty snowy, but uh, we don't have any pump tracks open right here right now. But the one in Squamish, I I do definitely love that paved pump track riding all year long. And it is so tiring. So if you don't have time to go out for a big epic ride, um, but you do just like want to go tire yourself out, pump track's awesome. And the dirt jumps too. Like I, I definitely spent some time at the dirt jumps this winter, the indoor dirt jumps and they will keep you honest, you know, they will make sure you remember to scoop those pedals and do all the things and keep your eyes up. And yeah, it's can't speak highly enough of just doing those little basic things so that when you do get back on your bike full time, springtime, you're just at one with it already. I find that I have to like, because my, to be fair, to watch me ride, you can understand that I don't spend too much time at the pump track or dirt jumps. You know, let's put that out there. But um, I find I have to actively disconnect my normal riding brain when I go to the pump track, which is quite rare because otherwise, if I had my own way, I'd probably just go at a steady but not particularly impressive rate and just do laps. Like it's really <laughs> I did 5,000 laps to get away track. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no, but it would, it would just happen. It would be like, like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> That is a good game. We have to have a dangerous game to see who can go the longest without pedaling. But once you get in a good rhythm, you could probably go for a, a long, long time. That would be, yeah, yeah, we could probably, yeah, ride ourselves into oblivion if you show up out here, Henry. We'll do something stupid. <laughs> yeah, Henry, I feel like we need to mention your 
uh, 1 million feet goal in a year. It seems pretty humble that you haven't actually mentioned this yet in our big dumb ride and like motivation yeah, podcast well, yet. Yeah, I suppose in some ways it was made up of like a lot of dumb rides, a lot of smaller dumb rides supposed to any like ones worth boasting about. Yeah, no, I did it a couple of years ago now. It was, um, it was super fun actually. I heard um, Mr. Weir did it and I thought, I don't know, it just, it just seemed like a like a really good a good thing to tick off over a year and yeah, I just lived my life by a spreadsheet and it was wholly satisfying and it really just set me up for kind of um for kind of climbing challenges i guess it's 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 really interesting now because you see so many people doing so many cool things you know mountain biking and all these weird climbing challenges and stuff but i remember when i did that and i was having to i felt i was such a nerd i had to explain to people you know like what meters ascent was or what feet ascent was and they'd be like, what, so like a long go? be like, no, up. They're like, diagonal? I was like, no, up. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got this um, I've got this kind of cool idea that I like to do maybe with Pink Bike. I've kind of spoken to um, to Brian about it, and now I've got some good campaigners on the case you know, to, to lobby him. Is I like to do like, I want to do the million feet again one day. And it'd be cool to do um, like a million feet of testing so we can get, say, four group sets, maybe top tier and entry level and then do 250,000 on each. And then once we get all these worn parts, we can then hand them to the rest of the tech ed team and they can review them. Things, you know, how battered and twisted they are or are not. But the only thing is I can imagine, like, imagine having a mech that you've specifically done, say, like a quarter of a million feet of climbing on. And then at the last ride, ripping it off, it would be <laughs> heartbreaking. Yeah, it's tricky. It's almost, yeah, but the wear and tear on parts is sometimes hard to judge when you do destroy them before they <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously you know you need like this is why they have those machines to put things through a thousand million cycles before but uh but yeah having you out there doing long-term testing on things it's definitely a, a good a good use of you might as well make the most of that time while you're out there just spinning around yeah perfect yeah. did you have a full-time job the last time that you did a million yeah i did yeah except for the last so basically i was working in a burger bar for the first part of it because i needed a visa in, in new zealand and then I, then I went back to the bike shop and um and the last part of it had basically i during the summer basically i did, I separ- I did like a like a uh, separate my shoulder in new zealand and then i tore some knee cartilage in at the start of the european summer so i lost like two months just of no bike time and so the last month i was unemployed i lived at my grandma's house and basically became you know the nerd that i was i was born to be and i did like i think i did 180,000 feet of climbing in the last like 27 days so i was going out every day just to do 10 to do ten thousand feet like a lot of the time but I, because that long story short i couldn't ride every day and i only did it on one climb and this is the funny thing the climb was only like 90 meters <laughs> oh brutal <laughs> so everyone was just like who is this absolute lemon as i was just like <laughs> just going <laughs> goodness me uh yeah well, so for everyone listening i think we've given them a good uh some, definitely some different perspectives on how to stay motivated. Henry just makes spreadsheets and rides a ridiculous amount. And then I think then is the other wet method of doing a little bit of dirt jumping, doing some snowboarding, doing some hucking. Sarah's kind of in the middle doing a little bit of numbers crunching, but also doing things. Yeah. I was thinking also another thing is like, just I rode flats for a couple months, like last year for the first time. And like, that just kind of changed riding entirely. So that was kind of like a cool challenge in itself like i'd grown up riding clip pedals and never not had my feet attached to my pedals so that was kind of interesting to to ride flat pedals i got a lot better at wheelies which was like another 
challenge in itself. So I feel like there's just a lot of cool ways to stay motivated. Like sometimes I have to remind myself though, when it's March, it's like, well, that's not a March goal. It's maybe a little later in the summer. You could wait a little bit. Like sometimes I just get overexcited in March, April. Like that's usually yeah. early seasons when you end up hurting yourself. Cause you're like, yeah. yeah, I feel great on my bike and the dirt is amazing. And oh shoot. Now I'm out for the rest of the month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I have seasons for that too. Like there's certain moves that I'll hit you know, later in the summer, but like now it's like, Oh, I haven't hit that in a while. It's time to like, remember how that works. And it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting how your, how your cycle of riding goes. Um, I think that kind of brings us kind of sort of a rambling conversation, but hopefully people enjoyed that and be sure to let think us know what some challenges for yourself. Yeah. I think, think yeah. of challenges and even just like goofing off on the side of the trail, doing little like trials challenges or just, uh, sessioning things. I think people forget to session things a lot with, you know, Strava makes people just want to keep riding riding and riding and riding and not stopping and just, you know, I'll say goofing around, but you're really learning things. If you find a, a weird skinny log or you know, pile of rocks or something, or trying to climb something that looks impossible. I had a lot of fun on the impossible climb yesterday. I only yeah. fell twice. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even people that say they hate climbing, you know, sometimes you can try to find a way to make it more entertaining and maybe you'll maybe not like it, but you might detest it less. So, um, yeah, I think that's all kinds of things. It's a time of year to start looking towards those, spring and summertime goals. So set out some things. And Yeah. I actually on a little, just to finish you off there, <laughs> yeah. I had a good chat with a girlfriend up a climb yesterday. Just one of those steep unrelenting climbs that just goes for like about an hour. And I'm just yelling at myself there. I'm like, you love this climb. This is great. You're doing awesome. And she's like, is that, are you self motivated? Or like, are you using positive self-talk <laughs> right now? And I was like, Oh yes, I definitely am. And it 100% <laughs> helps like even if you know climbing isn't your thing or whatever I don't know if challenge is the right word whatever uh you know you want to motivate yourself to do there's definitely something to be said about positive self-talk and you can convince yourself to do some really stupid stuff if you say it in a happy way in your head or out loud yeah I think one last little thought would be like I think for me that one of the tools I come back to is telling myself I don't have to do it and if you don't want to do it, you can just go home and make a cup of tea. And then with that freedom, I suddenly feel more emboldened to do it sometimes. Yeah, that's a good thing too. Not putting too much pressure on yourself because at the end of the day, again, like we always say, it is just bikes. So you don't actually have to go ride every single day for thousands and thousands of hours. But if you can kind of accept that you'll probably have a good time every time you do get out, then it makes it a little easier. Yeah, well, that's a wrap for episode 55 of the Pink Bike Podcast. As always, thanks for joining in and listening. Thanks for hopping on board, Christina and Henry. We'll get you guys on some more podcasts in the future. And thank you, Sarah, as well. And thanks for having us. That's it. And happy yeah. anniversary. I know. In one year. Yeah. We'll keep doing this. These are good. So, uh, yeah, we'll see everybody next week. Bye.